Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A few years ago, we had the late Stanford professor Cliff Nass on the show, and his research focus was how people interact with their machines. So outside of teaching on the side, uh, he would get hired by companies and they would bring him in to improve workers' productivity. And he would tell the bosses, here's what you need to do. Let these folks work on emails for like 20 minutes and then have them go back to their main work. And this is what the bosses said back to him. Oh, my gosh. Email's not worth 20 minutes. My goodness, it's so ridiculous. And I'll say, okay, let's clock how many minutes you use email a day, and it's 150, 200, and these little squirts. So I asked Nass, why? Why do we do things in little squirts? And what about email or Twitter or Facebook or anything that interrupts our routine makes it so appealing? So I think it's the feeling of these quick squirts give you a sense of accomplishment. And one of the the signs of maturity is to be able to realize that achieving a long-term goal should give you a sense of accomplishment. But reading a quick news story, you know, responding rapidly, consuming a quick Twitter message or a text message gives us a feeling like, hey, I checked something off my to-do list. There is a solution here. It's something that Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychiatrist, knew about. Charles Darwin did it too. Bill Gates does it regularly. It's what's called deep work. Cal Newport, a professor of computer science at Georgetown who has written about deep work, tells the story of an entrepreneur who got a book contract and he took a flight all the way to Japan simply to free himself from distractions so he could focus on writing. He wrote all the way to Japan, he had an espresso at the Tokyo airport, and he turned around and came home, manuscript in hand. He said it was the best $4,000 he ever spent. Cal Newport is here to talk about Deep Work, which is the title of his latest book. Cal, welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. So how do you describe Deep Work to people? Well, Deep Work is the activity in which you're focused without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. Now, this, of course, is much different than how most of us spend most of our time, which is in a state of continually shifting attention, a little bit of attention on one thing, a quick check of something else, back to the original thing. Deep work, by contrast, is intense focus, unbroken on one thing. Do you think that if you ask people if they were working hard and focusing, they would think they were but they're really not, or they know they're not focusing? I think a lot of people think that they are actually focused and getting a lot done. When if you're actually observing them objectively, you would see that's not at all the case. Hmm. And I think a big culprit for this reality is this effect called attention residue, which says even a, a quick check of, say, an email inbox or a social media website or a text box on your phone, even a quick check, can actually leave a residue for 10, 20 minutes that significantly reduces your cognitive capacity. So I think Mm -hmm. what a lot of people are doing is almost focusing on one thing, but with these quick checks sprinkled enough that they're actually operating in a state of significantly reduced cognitive capacity. What made you so interested in deep work yourself? Because, I mean, it's really changed how you work. How is it 
was it something that you got into? Well, I'm in one of the last fields where people actually still talk about deep work as a tier one skill that's core for your success. So I'm a theoretical computer scientist. I prove theorems for a living. So in my world, when I was coming up, this is still a place where people actually talk about how good can you focus and that you admire people based on their ability to lock in on something cognitively demanding. So it's something that had always been at my, uh, in my world. But as I actually look deeper into it, what became clear is that this is much more broadly valuable than we recognize right now. It's not just for the sort of writers and professional mathematicians among us that the ability to focus is important. It's actually a broadly useful skill, and I don't think we're talking about this enough. Right. When you talk about a lot of people who have adopted this idea of deep work, basically being left alone for large chunks of time every day. I mean, I think about somebody like uh, Charles Darwin, who had a very kind of regimented life where he ate breakfast alone. I mean, he had these very specific things he did, and he was thinking during those periods of the day. Yeah, deep work is very difficult. It's taxing. So what you find if you study people historically who have been good at it is that they build these rituals surrounding the deep work sessions. I do it at the same time or I do it at a special place or I have a certain habits of activities that happen during the deep work. It's really no different than if you're doing sort of intense physical training that you probably have a, a routine that's really fixed because, you know, otherwise you're, you're unlikely to just spontaneously pick up some weights and start lifting. So I think acknowledging that deep work is not only valuable, but it is hard and that you're really going to need to support it. And this is probably going to require some lifestyle changes and some rituals and some routines. It's really important if you're going to succeed with it. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, okay, well, this is great for, you know, somebody who, like you, is an academic. Uh, Maybe this is great for Bill Gates, who, you know, has all the money in the world and is retired mostly from his Microsoft work anyway. But for me, you know, for an average worker who has to get things done every day, who people want to say, hey, you know, can can you answer this question really quickly? I've got to get this information out to put it in a memo or whatever. It's hard to disappear for two hours at a time because you're doing deep work. Well, here's my recommendation. I mean, first of all, we recognize that there's two types of work efforts. There's deep work and there's everything else, which we can call for now shallow work. Uh, Both are important. But the way I like to think about it is that shallow work is what tends to keep you from getting fired, while deep work (laughs) is what gets you promoted. Okay. And so my recommendation is actually that if you work for someone, that you actually have a conversation with whoever supervises you or is your boss and say, okay, here's what shallow work is. Here's what deep work is. Both important. What should my ratio be? What's my target? You know, what should be the ratio of deep to shallow work I should be trying to hit? Agree on this and then measure and come back and say, hey, I'm falling well short of this. What, what can we do to make some changes? And you'd be surprised how malleable some of these workplace cultures are. Some of these workplace cultures where you say it is just ingrained in the culture here at WGBH or wherever it happens to be that if everyone is not on a Slack channel that the whole the whole uh, station is going to fall apart and we're going to you know lose our radio license. You feel like it's just ingrained. <laughs> and I have case after case of people have this conversation and suddenly there's massive changes and, and now there's protected time and unprotected time and the, and the amount of high quality, high craft output that people are producing really goes up. So these things are malleable. And I really think the first step is to start talking about it and say, what should I be aiming for here? You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Cal Newport, author of the book, Deep Work, Rules for Focus Success in a Distracted World. So I think another barrier to working really deeply is that 
increasingly, and this is not true everywhere, but increasingly people are in very open spaces where it's hard to concentrate because, for example, there are conversations going on around you. So the possibility of getting deep down into something and kind of isolating yourself the way that Carl Jung did or the way that Charles Darwin did, um, that's really hard to do. I mean, you're not in the English countryside and you're not in a Swiss castle. Yes, I think open office spaces have been a disaster for, for productivity in the knowledge era. I think we're going to look back and say, this was a dumb move. And, you know, I actually went back and, and, and dived into the sort of motivating architectural case studies that led to the open office movement. Take, for example, the famous Bell Labs Murray Hill campus, which is cited as one of the, the pieces of inspiration for the right, open office right. movement. Because they said, you know, you have all of these different thinkers from different fields who are running into each other, right. these serendipitous encounters. Right. But if you if you go back and, and study that building, and I actually, he's now a, a very prominent um, uh, doctor, but his dad was a famous physicist, and he used to uh, work as a janitor, help cleaning the halls in Murray Hill, and he was telling me about it. That the architecture there is not an open office. Actually, the thinkers had very private offices where they'd spend a lot of time thinking really hard, uninterrupted. The the magic of the Murray Hill campus is that everyone was connected on one long hallway so that when you emerged from your deep work, you were sort of forced in the hallway and in the dining hall to to meet and mingle and have new ideas. It was a mm. hub and spoke architecture. If you get rid of the spoke part, the part where you actually do the work and you only focus on the hub part where the inspiration is, it's you have to remember Edison's adage about innovation being 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. Open offices are just focusing on that 1% and making it impossible to do the other 99. So this is why if you've had this discussion, here's my deep work to shallow work ratio, I think it's very easy to pivot from there and say, okay, well, then during these deep work hours that we've talked about and negotiated and agree are important, I'm getting out of here. What's the minimum amount of time you think you need to really do some deep thinking? Let's say you don't have four hours. You know, if somebody has a little bit of time What's sort of, you know, the minimum qualifier for doing some deep work? Right around 90 minutes. Okay. I mean, it's going to take you 20 minutes just to clear out the residue in your mind of everything else going on. And then you get a good hour or so after that of sort of high, high level depth. And you want to do at least an hour if you're going to get something done. Okay. Now, you must have looked at CEOs, high-level people, you know, people who've really achieved a lot, who don't have this philosophy. Do you have a sense of, you know, how people uh, succeed without deep work? Or, I mean, or is there, in your view, really no way to do that? Well, first, it's important to emphasize that there certainly are positions in which deep work is just not that relevant. And one of the positions I actually point out is if you are, for example, a CEO of a large organization, deep work is probably not that relevant to your success, that it makes more sense for a CEO to be making decisions from a common base of experience and a common strategy for the company on the results of deep work of other people, maybe who's you know below her, saying, okay, mm. we've thought about this for a long time. Here's option A and B. The CEO says, let's do option B. If you're in sales or if you're in as they call euphemistically around here in D.C., uh, government relations. Uh, <laughs> deep work's not that important. Connections are important. Networking's important. Right, Constant right. contact's important. Right. So there, lunches with people are important. Lunches with right. people are important, yeah, yeah. right. Um, so it, it's, it's not for everyone, but I think it's for 
way, way more people uh, than you would expect. So just because your current job happens to be one where attention is fractured and people send emails all the time doesn't necessarily mean that deep work wouldn't be very valuable. And I think in the vast majority of cases, really where you're going to produce the most value for yourself and for your organization is if you're able to actually concentrate intensely to build craft and to create things uh, that are valuable. And this is just simple market economics. I mean, if you're spending a lot of time on email or social media, this is something that any 16-year-old with a smartphone can do. So there's no way that you're actually producing something rare and valuable there. So that time really is not that valuable as far as the market's concerned. Whereas when you're concentrating intensely, you're actually building your skills and applying your skills at the peak of your current capability. So you're producing the rarest, most valuable things possible that you're able to actually produce that's much more likely to be valued by the market. So no amount of busyness or emails or accessibility is going to translate into an actual significant amount of value in the marketplace. Are there any companies that are putting deep work into practice that maybe we would have heard of? Well, right now they tend to be uh, either smaller startups or they tend to be teams within a very large organization. What I'm yet to see, and I'm surprised, but I think it's going to change, is I'm yet to see sort of the large Silicon Valley players make this change, but I, it has to be inevitable. I mean, if I was Google and I was spending as much money as they are on programming talent, the, the very first thing I would do is say, I'm turning off all of your guys' email addresses. I'm not paying this money for you to be sending email. I want you concentrated on producing code. I mean, if you, if you focus intensely on your code, that can be a 5 to 10x better output than if you have a Slack channel open that whole time and you're in these type of conversations. So because we're talking dollars and cents, I think it is inevitable in the next five to 10 years that we're going to start to see major companies moving away from these sort of ad hoc, constant communication style models and towards much more structured workflows focused on the people who create value, letting them create value at the highest possible level. Do you think that this approach would be incredibly difficult for young people who are, I think it's fair to say in many cases, surgically attached to their smartphones and like texting all the time and surfing the web all the time. And they've been practicing that for 10 years. And, you know, would that be hard to go into a job and say, okay, well, I'm done with that? It is hard. And it's why when I I talk about how one develops the ability to do deep work at a high level, there's two types of efforts. You know, one type is just practicing depth, practicing concentration. But the other type, which I think is just as important, is actually training your brain to be comfortable with deep work. And a big part of that is you really have to become re-familiar with boredom. And so this is particularly hard for, for young people because if you've trained your brain that at the slightest hint of boredom, it's going to get a novel stimuli delivered through your phone or a tablet, it is really going to struggle when it comes time to do deep work, to actually maintain concentration on one thing. So I actually uh, coach young people in how to detox from this sort of addiction to stimulation. And a big part of it, and people don't like this, but a big part of it is practicing being bored. Uh, Don't bring the phone. Put the phone away. Uh, Have set times in the night where you're going to use the phone and not using it outside of that. And if you're stuck in line at the bank and there's nothing to look at and it's an hour-long line then you're just going to be stuck in the line at the bank and be bored. It might sound terrible, but it actually can be just as important to your ability to do deep work as it would be, you know, to eat healthy if you're hoping to become, you know, a professional athlete. Right. I'm going to tell that to our intern. I'm sure he's going to be thrilled and uh, (laughs) he can he can try it out. 
boredom's great. Boredom is is underrated, but <laughs> but it's also it's the foundation. I mean, it's the foundation of the ability to concentrate. You have mm. to be comfortable without stimuli. And I'll tell you, especially for young people, it makes your life a lot less anxious. I think there's a lot of us. I mean, I'm young myself, but I see the people that are uh, just a few years younger than me sort of have this background hum of anxiety in their life, unspecified sort of anxiety. This is a side effect of having this sort of constant flitting of attention from one thing to another. It's We're not wired for it. Right. So I think boredom has a lot to recommend it. And so I'm a big... I'm a big boredom, but look, I'm the guy saying be bored and quit social media and, you know, and, and sit there and stare at things for a long amount of time. So uh, I'm not I'm not always the most you know popular person at cocktail parties, but I can tell you, you know, a deep life, it really can be not just a productive life, but a pretty meaningful life as well. So it's, it's worth giving this some thought. Cal Newport is the author of Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. He's also an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown Cal, thanks for your time. Well, thank you. Speaking of distractions, how many hours have you frittered away on Facebook or Twitter? We've got a link to Cal Newport's TED Talk about dumping social media altogether. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. So before you plot to change your office around, here's the story of a man who's already done that. And you might say it didn't exactly work out. Robert Probst was a brilliant young inventor who started his own shop in Denver, and then he got hired by the office furniture company Herman Miller. One thing that Probst immediately zeroed in on when he got to Herman Miller was that he didn't like the way that most offices functioned. He said they were a wasteland. And in the 1960s, there was this new fad sweeping workplaces, open offices, people sitting at desks with very little separation from each other. No one had any privacy. It was hard to concentrate. So Probst came up with something different. It was a complete workstation that had some creative features. It allowed you to work standing up or sitting down. Uh, There were fabric-covered partial walls, which were easily adjustable so you could get some privacy. Herman Miller put it on the market as the action office, and the concept was super popular. Except that in general, it was implemented in a way that Probst hated. His invention was turned into the cubicle. The space for each worker shrunk way down, the stand-up, sit-down desk option was often eliminated, and the walls were not adjustable to fit your needs. Probst said, and this is a quote, not all organizations are intelligent and progressive. They make little bitty cubicles and stuff people in them, barren, rat-hole places. But don't give up if you spend a lot of your time behind those fabric-covered walls. Maynard Webb, the former chief operating officer of eBay, once told me that the lack of privacy can have an upside. When he worked at eBay, everyone sat in cubicles, including the woman next to him, CEO Meg Whitman. If there was a problem that somebody was calling her on, I would have my teams working on it before she got off the phone. And she'd turn over and say, hey, man, we got to get on this. I said, oh, we're already on it. That was pretty cool. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, or you can find it on SoundCloud. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.
there are these two ideas that to some degree I think a lot of us believe. One is you can't really put a price on happiness. And the other is if you had just a little more money, you'd be a lot happier. The economist Robert Frank has spent years trying to figure out how money and happiness intersect when it comes to your job. He's a professor at Cornell and a contributor to The New York Times, and he says this is something that you actually can calculate. I asked him when experts started trying to figure out the value of getting the right job for you. Oh, this is a very old device in economics. It goes back at least as far as Adam Smith, which means nobody knows how much further back it could go. Uh, You can look at at, uh, people who are similarly situated uh, in jobs, for example. Maybe one job is just like another, except that it's riskier. You're more likely to die if you take the first job. Most people don't like uh, exposure to risk, and so why would you take the risky job if somebody were offering the, the safer one at the same pay? So the only way they can right. fill the riskier job is to offer a premium uh, in pay. And, and the economists exploit that observation by saying, well, we'll look at how much extra you get paid for each one in a thousand probability of dying on the job each year and make an right. estimate of the statistical value of a life by doing that. And and that same technique can be applied to just about any kind of job characteristic that people care about. You know, uh, the Gallup organization uh, fairly often will try to get a sense of how Americans feel about their jobs. Um, and something like, it depends on the year, but something like 30% of Americans say, yes, I feel engaged at work. When you read that 30%, I don't know how that sounds to you, but that sounds t- to me. So what's going on that 70% of people presumably are saying, yeah, I don't really feel that engaged with the the thing I do every day? That's uh, probably accurate. It strikes me just from my own uh, familiarity with that literature. And it's also, as, as you suggest, a sad statistic. You know, we spend more time working probably than we do at anything else. And right. if, you're, if you're not happy about what you're doing most of those hours, that's too bad. Uh, maybe that's inevitable. Maybe maybe the choices you face don't permit a better outcome than that. But uh, in a surprising number of cases, there are better options. What are we doing wrong that we have those kinds of numbers? I mean, how, how would you uh, flip them? How would you get it to the point where 70 percent of people are happy <laughs> with their jobs? Uh, I teach MBAs. Uh, that's that's my job, uh, and and they confront this kind of decision in a very dramatic way. Uh, they they go out into the job market. They do interviews. They get offered different positions, and uh, it's hard to compare different jobs. There there are probably a hundred characteristics of any job that people might, in principle, right. care about. And the, the one that's easier to observe than any other is how much are they going to pay you? And so I think the tendency, uh, both for prestige reasons, both for uh, uh, an inflated sense of how important men- money is for your ability to lead a happy life, for a variety of other reasons, people in that part of the job market at least focus too much on 
which one offers me the most money and don't think quite enough about the other characteristics that go along with that job. And so I try to tell my students, look, if they're paying you way more uh, than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? Maybe they mm. want you to do something that most people don't like to do. Right. They're, they're, they're giving you some hardship pay. You have to figure out what That's the right. hardship is. Yeah. What's the catch here? That, right. That, and there usually is one. When, uh, when you think about students that you've had in the past and that maybe you kept up with and, and you were able to talk to after they took that initial job or two, did they often come back to you and say something like, boy, I took the, whatever, $200,000 a year job, not the $150,000 a year, and I, I made a mistake? Or What do they say to you? Yeah, I often do hear that. Uh, in, in the MBA job market, the temptations are to go into investment banking or consulting. Those are the two fields that pay the most. And often students come back and say, I did it for five years, but I just couldn't do it any longer. It was just uh, the hours, the travel, the the constant sense of burnout were just more than I and my family could could tolerate. Mm. Uh, and so I've switched to some other thing. And, and they often report, wow, that, that, that was a, a, a big eye-opener when they, they saw how much nicer it felt to come home at the end of the day, feeling like you'd done something you actually felt proud of doing. You... Um you talk about an experiment that uh, that you did, I think, at Cornell with, with students, looking at two very similar jobs, um, sort of writing essentially message or advertising copy, one for the American Cancer Society um, and one working on behalf of tobacco companies, essentially. Right. Talk about that experiment and what it told you about what people are willing to do for money. Uh, th this was a question I posed to a group of graduating seniors at Cornell some years back. Uh, the, the jobs paid the same. The offices were the same. They had the same travel budgets. Assume all this. Uh, in one case, you're writing copy for an ad campaign aimed at discouraging teenagers from starting to smoke. That, that's the American Cancer Society job. Uh, and then the Tobacco Institute job was to write ad copy for a campaign encouraging teenagers to smoke. Which job would you take if they both paid the same? Well, not surprisingly, 90-plus uh, percent of the, the respondents said, oh, they would pick the anti-tobacco ad copywriting job. Right. Then I asked them, all right, now imagine uh, that the tobacco job, pro-tobacco job, was paying you a premium if you'd switch to their office. How much would the premium have to be? And the average premium that people reported was in the order of 80 percent over the salary that they were earning at the Cancer Society job. So, you know, it's a, it's a non-trivial number. You know, right. you could say it's just cheap talk. What would people do if they actually faced a, right, a choice right. like that, if they had bills to pay? But, you know, we can look to the labor market uh, and, and we can see uh, the, the Harvard and Yale law grads who were on law review. Those are uh, they could take any job in the legal field they want. Uh, the very best of them split. Uh, some of them go to the big corporate firms, mostly in New York City. They, they earn huge salaries. 
Others take public interest jobs like American Civil Liberties Union, also in New York Uh City, where they earn about a third as much as they would earn in the private law firm Mm -hmm. jobs. And it's not that they're not as good. Uh, It's not that the hours aren't long in both jobs. They are. But when they go home at the end of the day, they they feel like apparently it was worth it to take the big cut in pay just to be able to say, I felt good about what I was doing all day. Does it matter? In absolute terms, how much money you make, or does it matter how much money you make in terms of happiness in comparison to how much the guy down the street makes? Like, do do you, you know, if you're making a ton of money, but the people on both sides of you are making even more money, do you still feel kind of unhappy because you're... (laughs) You know, yeah. by comparison, yeah, this, the poor guy on the block. Th- this is a question I've studied for almost my entire career, and and the clear answer is that context matters enormously. Uh, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal, uh, fresh out of college. I lived in a two-room house. It, it didn't have any electricity or plumbing. Never once during the two years I lived in it did it seem in any way unsatisfactory. You know, I was proud to have colleagues over... It was a totally satisfactory house in that context. Uh, But if I lived in a house like that here in Ithaca, which isn't a a high roller town, uh, you know, I would would feel embarrassed about the fact my kids wouldn't have wanted their friends to see where we lived. Uh, It would have been unacceptable. So, yes, context matters a great deal. But so does absolute income matter. If you had a choice between live, if you were going to be in the middle of the distribution in a rich country or a poor country, uh, you'd have good reasons to think it might be a better choice to go to the rich country. You'd live longer there. The air would be cleaner. There'd be less noise. There would be better water. The jobs would be more interesting. So having economic progress isn't an empty thing. Uh, uh, good things happen when, when incomes grow higher. But, but yeah, you ought to be willing to trade some of your income in favor of a, 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 a better context. Well, it explains in some ways why so many Americans think they are middle class, even if they are not necessarily middle class. They may be, you know, in a lower class. They may be in a higher class. But um, generally, people live around people like them. So you might be a very rich person. You live in the middle of San Francisco. But everybody around you is so much richer. It feels like you're middle class. Yeah, and and in in the most meaningful sense, you are. Uh, You have a peer group. Uh, You know, it doesn't matter how smart you are relative to people on some other planet. You're not competing with them. So it's the local environment that really is your frame of reference for everything important to you or almost everything important to you. So if you're at the bottom of that group, then that's a, a reason to be concerned. How am I doing? Well, I'm not doing very well. Uh, if you're at the top of that group, whatever the group happens to be, then you feel like, hey, I'm, uh, life's, life's going okay for me. So you know, most people are in the middle of whatever group they're in. Do you find that uh, having money um, gives you the ability, you know, maybe from your parents or whatever, gives you the ability to be happier in the end because you're able to, let's say, make a career shift in the middle somewhere, you know, go back to school, do the kind of thing that somebody who didn't have that kind of money could not draw on wealthy parents. Um, You know, you can do that. They can't. Yeah. Yeah. There are some clear advantages to having money, but it's uh, got a downside too. Uh, I was adopted as an infant. Uh, I'm Later met my uh, birth mother's family, lovely uh, old New England family with uh, 
a, a fairly large uh, amount of wealth that had been path, passed down through the generations in it. And uh, it, it struck me that if I had grown up in that family and knew that I had a, a trust fund coming my way in my 20s or 30s, uh, would I have taken the steps I took to develop a career for myself? Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm really quite skeptical that I would have. You know, I yeah. would have found it very easy to say, I'll work on that tomorrow uh, and, and continue to do what's most most fun for me to do today. There, there's a great piece uh, Warren Buffett's son wrote, uh, wrote an essay. It, it was uh, on NPR some years back, uh, expressing his deep gratitude for the fact that his father had made it clear to him early on that he wouldn't be inheriting a big pile of money from his father. Huh. Uh, he he has carved out just a wonderfully satisfying niche for himself uh, in the artistic domain uh, and. Uh, I think rich parents, if they haven't uh, seen a similar testimony uh, on that subject, would would do very well to go and read that that essay and and think about what posture to strike vis-a-vis their own kids and, and inheritance. Robert Frank is a professor of economics at Cornell. Thank you so much for your time. Carol, what a pleasure. And we'll have a link to a New York Times article that Robert Frank wrote about the value of a job at our website, innovationhub.org. This is Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. If you think about what makes successful people successful, all those things that people write best-selling books about, like grit and determination and inventiveness, you probably don't include on that list spouse. The influence of a spouse can impact how satisfied a person is with their job in the future and how likely that person is to be promoted, as well as how much income they're likely to make uh, throughout the next few years. Brittany Solomon is an assistant research professor at the University of Notre Dame and the co-author of a paper analyzing how who you choose to marry affects your career. And when she and her colleagues tried to figure out what sort of partner is going to benefit you the most, what kind of character traits that they might have would be positives, they found something surprising, which is that only one personality characteristic really benefits a spouse's career. One. So conscientiousness is just the one trait that consistently mattered for a person's career success. And conscientiousness is typically associated with being reliable, efficient. People who are conscientious are organized. They have a lot of self-control. They're industrious. Solomon says if you want to break it down, there are three reasons that conscientiousness helps. First, it allows you to outsource. In a marriage, one person could outsource things like household chores and finances, things like that, to a conscientious spouse, and that can save them uh, energy and just the mental capacity to, that they can then preserve you know, when facing their own work. Second, lots of people apparently admire their conscientious spouses. So when your spouse has a lot of really good qualities that are pragmatic and can help somebody be more successful in the workplace, again, being organized and goal-oriented, hardworking, um, that's going to rub off on, a, on the other spouse, and um, ultimately that will increase his or her own occupational success. And finally, the last reason why, if you've got a conscientious spouse, 
you've hit the jackpot, you tend to be happier. Because conscientious spouses are going to be on top of things, they're going to increase uh, their partner's day-to-day happiness and lower their stress levels because, you know, you don't have to nag your spouse if they're already taking care of things that they need, that they said that they were going to do, they're, you know, you can depend on them. So because uh, the relationship satisfaction is going to, would be higher with a conscientious spouse, that'll spill over into the workplace and spouses are Individuals can focus more on their own work because they have fewer relationship problems that might drain their personal resources. When I read this research, what it sounded like to me was that what would be really helpful is to have someone stay at home and manage everything that's not work-related so you don't have to worry about it. Solomon says, yes, having a stay-at-home spouse is helpful on one measure of job success and one measure only, how much money you make. But with the other two um, measures of career success that we looked at, which were job satisfaction and likelihood of promotion, there really was no difference between whether both spouses worked or just uh, or whether there was one stay-at-home spouse. If you're looking for the big takeaway here, it's certainly not that your own awesomeness doesn't matter, but that a partner's awesomeness can really help you out. When you set up some sort of dating profile online or just, you know, when you're out and about, uh, open, you know, on the on the dating market, people don't think, oh, well, I'd like to have somebody who's highly organized and has, you know, uh, they're very reliable and responsible because that kind of sounds like a recipe for sort of a rigid and maybe a lackluster lifestyle. But in reality, having a conscientious partner, as we've seen with this study, is likely to yield both personal and professional success. So I think that a lot of times we probably selfishly attribute a lot of our own success to the work that we've put in and what we can see, the things that are tangible that we're doing. For instance, how much time we're spending on, uh, you know, in the office and on our work. And maybe we kind of neglect or don't uh, give as much credit to the things that our spouses are doing to help facilitate our success. So a lot of in- invisible tax- tasks in the in the household, things like taking care of kids or just attending to um, planning and coordinating events, uh, those kinds of things that are invisible, I, I think that sometimes we, we may neglect how much um, other people do to support and facilitate the success that we're able to have. Brittany Solomon is an assistant research professor at the University of Notre Dame and the co-author of the paper, The Long Reach of One Spouse. Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? It may seem to you that I'm acting confused when you're close to me. A lot of the topics that have been swirling around in the presidential election this year have been, I'm going to say, unusual. They're not your classic debate or white paper or op-ed topics. But if you were going to pick two issues that are more traditional and that have been a big deal throughout the campaign, they might be jobs and immigration. And one person who sits in a unique position when it comes to those two issues is Maria Contreras-Sweet. She's a member of President Obama's cabinet, the head of the U.S.'s Small Business Administration, and she's an immigrant. I was born in Mexico, Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. And when we got to the United States, we couldn't speak English. We didn't know the culture. We didn't know the language. So for my mother to be able to provide for my family, she wasn't going to get a government or a big corporate job. The only way in which she could uh, provide for her family was 
by being hired by a local small business. I met with Contreras Sweet recently at MIT, and I talked to her about where new jobs are going to come from, whether immigrants are indeed taking American jobs, as has been discussed a lot in this campaign, and how her own family dealt with starting over in an entirely new place. When she came to America, her mom and dad had separated, and her mother had to raise a family without a lot of resources. She was hired by a a poultry processing plant, and it was a beautiful story just to see her because she would always say, you know, I came to America because there's a reason. I know my kids are going to do well here. And she and she worked in this refrigerated plant, and I saw her fingers stiffen and her legs thicken. And I'd write to my grandmother, and I'd say, I don't know why we came here. It wasn't like that back at home. And she said, because I know you will provide success for yourself and for others along the way. And remember, it's not the titles you have. It's, the ti- it's what you do with the titles that you have that matters in life. And that was an important lesson for me. That is a hard job working in a poultry plant, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, People don't realize. Just... I mean, they, they eat chicken and they don't realize that like, these, are, these are tough physical jobs. Correct. Yeah. Exactly right. But it was always so that's how she got her first job was just applying at a local place. And they knew her. They knew her integrity and, and her hardworking sense. And so, but that's my point, that that is the experience that so many Americans across America have. How do they get their first job? It's usually at a small business that knows them, that knows them through church and has a sense of comfort with them and then engages them. There's been a lot of talk, um, especially during this election season, and I'm sure you've heard some of it, this idea that... um, when immigrants come in, they take American jobs rather than, let's say, create American jobs or or add to the tax base. When you hear all that floating around, as it has been in the mm-hmm. ether, what do you think? Just in general, what I've always felt is um, uh, I wonder where that comes from. Because what I do see is some of the same people who are concerned about immigration inflows, that uh, there's no comment about the corporate outsourcing of jobs around the world. And so I have to say, how do you feel about the corporate outsourcing? Because that's where the really good quality jobs are. I mean, if some people are coming in here to pick our grapes, to pick our tomatoes, jobs that most other people don't want to do, to clean out our hotels, to work in the back room of our restaurants, and we and we hold them with such hostility, you know, the way we view them. But all of us, you and I and everybody in this room and in this audience, had somebody in their life that wanted America for them. We all came from different places with different backgrounds, but all of us have in common that somebody wanted America for us. And we should honor that and respect that and be a country of people that is committed to embracing our differences because that's what's driving our productivity is when you have diversity of thought, of background, of experiences, skill sets, That's what creates the most innovation, the most success. And all studies prove that the more diversity you have at a table, everybody produces better. So so if you do think about job formation and you do think about small businesses, what role do immigrants play? And obviously, we're not just talking about immigrants from Mexico. There's immigrants from every country in the world. Um, But what role do they play? And how should somebody think about it who thinks... Well, gee, I don't know. I do see a lot of people coming to America and and wanting a new life, and maybe the jobs they're getting could be my job. 
Right. Uh, what I see is that today, 40% of the Fortune 500 companies are led by immigrants, and many of them created these companies. And so when you look at the job creation that's taking place, it's phenomenal to see what you know the founders of all these companies are doing and the jobs they're creating in our company. In fact, when I meet with um, so many of the Silicon Valley CEOs today, they are clamoring and this is another, uh, I think, uh, challenge for our country. They are clamoring for more immigrants. It's actually Silicon Valley and the high-tech companies are asking us for more technologists, more engineers, which is in part why I'm here today, is how do we have them become homegrown? I think that's so that, yes, we can absorb some, you know, and I understand that they want them today, but I also ask those same people, those same corporate CEOs, what are you doing to make sure that we're growing homegrown engineers and technologists. How are you investing? For example, in San Jose, you want to bring in everybody in from Russia, you want to bring people from China, and that's fine. Right. But what are you doing to develop the capacity in your own San Jose backyard? Mm -hmm. In Fresno, what are you doing to invest in our own American children to make sure that they're getting a proper education? I think those are some of the questions we need to be asking ourselves. Why, why isn't that happening as much? I mean, why do people want to go to India and Russia and, you know, in China and take the cream of the crop uh, rather than say, well, boy, we've got elementary and high schools down the street. Uh, we could groom those people to make $120,000 a year as a software engineer. I think we have to do some real deep soul searching ourselves because... Uh, you've been out to restaurants. I've been out to restaurants. Right? We all go out to dinner. And so many times I find that someone will, um, if we have a French uh, uh, waiter, and they'll just say, isn't that exquisite, his accent? Oh my gosh, it's so sexy. <laughs> or an Italian. And yet, when it's a Latino and it's a Spanish accent, they bristle and they say, why can't they learn English? So I am concerned about the embedded bias that we have for mm -hmm. some people of color. And I think that's why I suggest that we have to do some soul searching. And my goal, to a great extent, is how do we use that wind to our back? How do we say, if we have Spanish-speaking people here in our country, instead of saying that's a, somehow a disadvantage, how do we use that extra language to say, how do we capture the Western Hemisphere markets? How do we go into uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Colombia that's now normalizing, Argentina that's normalizing so, so aggressively? How do we capture those markets with these people who know that culture, who know the language, who have families in that? And let's use that as the wind to our back, go back and capture these markets and continue the global preeminence and the exceptionalism of what is America. A final question for you. When you travel around, do you ever meet kids whose experiences remind you of your own experiences growing up as an immigrant, uh, you know, being involved in some ways peripherally at first, at least, with small businesses? Um, I was recently at a high school back in my hometown and saw people who I thought looked just like me when I was there, <laughs> you know, and I just said, I wish I could talk to my old self, you know, I really wish that my young self, that I could engage them, but absent that, I could talk to these young people because um, I think that young girls today, no matter what your background, we need to dream bigger, you know, our young boys and, and young girls. I want them to dream bigger, you know, because Mark Zuckerberg said something to us recently in, in um, Silicon Valley, and he said, well, he was, 
at Harvard, and he came up with this uh, with this technology. He said, "Gosh, this is such a cool thing. Somebody's going to create something really cool out of this." But he watched, and no one did. And then he began to do it just for the university, if you remember. Mm. And then he said, "Well, somebody's going to create like an external, you know, app for this," and no one did. And and then he said, "God, somebody's going to take this global," and no one did. And the quite the real the real point to me was, you know, if you're a young kid with a great idea, be that person. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't naturally think that that was who he was, but somehow when he saw no one else was stepping up, he picked that brass ring. He took it and he ran with it. And I encourage every kid to grab that ring and to run with it because that's what America is about. It's about free enterprise. It's about taking your dream and taking it to scale and fulfilling your potential to improve the quality of all of us, to make us a more sustainable world, and to help us be have a more enduring and quality of life. Maria Contreras-Sweet runs the U.S. Small Business Administration, and she's a member of President Obama's cabinet. I spoke with her recently at MIT. We will have links on our Facebook page to several examinations of the role that immigrants play in America's economy, including one that Administrator Contreras-Sweet mentioned, which looks at how many Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants. About 40% were started up by either immigrants or their children. That's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also have production help from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI. Public Radio International.